Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Baroness Glenys Thornton is a Labour and Cooperative politician serving as a member of the House of Lords since 1998, and she is now also a Fellow of the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. I spoke to Glenys about her journey into the worlds of social innovation and social entrepreneurship. I had the huge good luck at the beginning of my working life to work at the Institute of Community Studies for Michael Young, who is was the great sociologist and social innovator. And so I learned from him and from working there that there are many ways of tackling society's ills and of being innovative and imaginative about what the solutions to the problems uh, that people face individually and in their communities. So that's what social innovation is about. It's about finding out, understanding and working out the best way to tackle social problems and society's problems. Some of those solutions can take a long time. For example, it took Michael 10 years to set up the, the Open University. It took 10 years from the research he did to actually the Open University being in uh, part of the Labour government's programme in 1964. And so the other thing I learned was I learned you have to be patient sometimes. You, you talk about your time with, with Michael Young and, and what you've learned there. How has that understanding that you developed uh, about social innovation shaped how you now work with others to tackle society's problems? Well, in, in several ways. First of all, it gave me an insight into setting up structures and businesses and organizations that were democratically based and that people could themselves could control. One of the very first things that uh, Michael asked me to do, I was his project director, was to spend time on a social housing council estate in Hackney, which was due for renovation. It had been built just after the First World War, so it was really in a very bad way. And my job was to work with the tenants on that estate to see what input and how they could make an input into what was going to be a huge renovation of the place where they lived. So that's what I did. I spent a lot of time with the tenants there. I worked with them, the Tenants Association and so on. And what I realised was that, that those tenants had an imbalance of power with the local authority. And so what we did was we used the money we'd raised for this project to hire an architect who could work with the tenants on what they wanted to see happening to their homes and to the common parts of their estate. And that that would be a counterbalance to the uh, professionals who thought they knew best in Hackney Council. And actually, it was absolutely the right thing to do, but not the obvious thing to do to use your resources to actually give those tenants the wherewithal and the control was in those days, I'm talking about 1980, was a very unusual thing to do. I mean, they usually couldn't even decide what the colour of their front door was. And I went back to that estate, it's called Leaveview House, many, 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 many years later. And it was really, really heartening to see what had happened because the tenants had said, 
that the common parts in the middle of this estate should be turned into a nursery and should be turned in. And, you know, those are the things over a period of time that happened. And it's a really lovely place to live. And that taught me that you should always trust the people who are actually affected by the changes and the work and what you or others might think are the best things to do. And so I thought I took that forward, I suppose, over the years to become a champion of social enterprise. And that's because I thought it was important that people should be able to set up businesses and organisations from which they could benefit either directly or indirectly in terms of themselves and their families and their communities. And that, because I'm a politician, I took that into Parliament with me when I went into the House of Lords and looked at what legislation might be needed and guidance might be needed to make it possible for social enterprises to thrive and to receive the kind of investment that other parts of our business community do. So there's been a sort of, for me, a direct line, and which is why I was really delighted to be asked to be a judge of the Innovation Prizes and was delighted to come and talk at the centre last summer because it's sort of part of the sort of as it were, the way my life's developed over the last 40-odd years. You've talked about, or you've mentioned, your move into politics and how you have hoped, and, and I'm sure are working very hard to ensure that there is that space that allows growth within social entrepreneurship and social innovation. But do you think there's a possibility, perhaps, that governments rely too much on social innovators and social entrepreneurs to dismantle systemic injustices? I think there's a danger that that can happen. But I suppose going back a bit further than that is that there was a complete lack of understanding about what it was one was talking about when you talked about social innovation and social enterprises. And it was one of the things that Michael Young really understood. He really understood the need for public policy. I mean, he is the person, of course, who wrote the Labour Party's 1945 manifesto and put things like the NHS in it. So, of course, he completely understood the importance of public policy and its role in this world. And, of course, it can make things happen. And, of course, it can also stop things from happening. So, for instance, when Michael Young had an idea, which is one of the things he asked me to look at, in 1980, he thought you should be able to dial three numbers on your telephone, like 999, you should be able to get into a health advice line. You know, he thought this was a good idea. So I went off to talk to the then monopoly supplier of our telephone services, British Telecom, and they said, yes, it's a very good idea, but the technology is about 25 years away. So in 25 years' time or so, the technology will be there for you to be able to do that, and then it could happen. So what Michael did in those 25 years, he set up a, a health helpline, and that meant he had dialogue with the medical professions and doctors and universities, and he set up a helpline where you could dial a number and get health advice. And so he tested that social innovation in the intervening period. And in 1997, and the Labour government was elected, they set up NHS Direct, and Michael Young was an advisor to doing that because the technology existed, and that is now 111. You have a great big smile on your face when you talk about Michael Young <laughs> in such innovative ways. Clearly, the man was ahead of his time, but what was it about working with him 
that has enabled where your career has now gone? Well, it's partly by not being afraid to think things that were not usual and think of solutions that weren't usual. And he also had this tendency not to ever take no for an answer. Um, so always challenging and always trying to look for, for solutions to things and not being afraid of getting things wrong. That was the other thing, is that for social innovators, maybe seven or eight of your brightest ideas will be useless, but the ninth and tenth one will be ones that will actually be good and run and help you and be a solution to something. And you shouldn't be afraid of those failures. You should learn from them. That's why the work of the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation is so important, is because it's actually about allowing ideas to be tested. It's allowing things, things may not work and you shouldn't be afraid of something that doesn't work. You then move on to the next thing. And that's what social innovators do. And that's okay. Finding a space for them to do that, which is what you've done at the business school, is really, really important and very innovative. And it's great, is that, because over a period of time, you will build up a kind of knowledge base that will help all the students and the innovators who come to you to test ideas out but also you will be able to say, oh, well, actually, you know, four or five years ago, somebody else came and talked to us about that. And that particular thing didn't work, but something else did. I think that's really important. And in a way, that's what I've sort of tried to do over the, it's not, as I, I always think of myself because I am a politician. I've been a politician all my life, joined the Labour Party when I was very young, joined the Communist Party when I was 16. But I think that my job as a politician is to make the link between the public policy and what governments do to help with and to facilitate the growth of innovations and social businesses. And nobody knew what you were talking about when you mentioned social innovation or social enterprise 20 odd years ago, but they do now. And that's because there's creating space and providing platforms is what somebody like me should be doing. You talk about people now knowing more than they did, say, 20 years ago about social innovation and social enterprise. I would argue the term social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, social entrepreneur, those terms are better known than the term and the concept and the movement. Let's call it a movement of social innovation. Why do you think that is? Well, I think probably because it, it, it doesn't mean that there's not a huge amount of social innovation going on, because I think it's always been there. You know, Michael Young was a particular type of person, but I think those things have always gone on. I don't think this is a new thing. So sometimes what happens is that an idea will be seized upon by a leader who will then give it expression and give it uh, currency. Uh, one of the politicians who helped with this social enterprise was actually Patricia Hewitt. Patricia Hewitt understood about, sometimes they get it, understood about social enterprise. And when she became Secretary of State for the Department of Trade and Industry in, I don't know, 2001, she had on her wish list setting up a social enterprise unit. And she had on her wish list how to get investment into social enterprises. And she understood that what we had to do is actually identify them and name them and get people to understand what we were talking about. 
And so sometimes you do need you do need a champion for these things. And I would have thought if so, if Michael Young was around now, he would be with social uh, media and so on, a great champion for social innovation. But it doesn't mean that the social innovations that we've been talking about at the Cambridge Centre aren't doing fantastic work and aren't got, haven't got leverage and, and knowledge because they are and they have. I think that it's important to have social innovation because your end product may not be a social enterprise. It may be an organisation. So the two things are definitely linked because they're aiming to, to um, challenge a social ill or a problem or bring a solution to bear on something. But the end product may not be a social enterprise. And that, I mean, it took me quite a while to kind of work out why, what I thought about that. But it is true, is that you need social innovators. You need people who are thinking about how to solve problems. And it might be that it's a publication that comes out of it. It might be that it's an important seminal piece of research that they produce. It might be that the end product is a major change in public administration of something, migration or something like that. So we shouldn't restrict ourselves, in my view. And it might be that it's a business, it's a straightforward business or a charity. It's quite possible that it may only deal with an issue in an area, in a small place. Doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. You may not be able to replicate. Some things are really hard to replicate, so it may not be replicable. But it doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. So I suppose I still have a very laissez-faire attitude towards social innovation and social enterprise. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy being, doing the judging so much, actually, because you do have a very wide range of innovations coming forward, and they're not all social businesses. You mentioned there about the Cambridge Social Innovation Prize. Can you explain how you were involved in it and what it is that you enjoyed so much about judging? <laughs> Well, partly it's because I've always, I've just helped to judge the Social Enterprise Awards for Social Enterprise UK this year. And I haven't done that for a long time. And it's the same thing. Partly I enjoy doing it because it's a completely selfish thing. It's because I learn what's happening out there in terms of social innovations. What are people thinking about? What are they addressing? And that's always very exciting. And, and I just love it. But also... The thing that I really value and which I tell people about when I talk about the Social Innovation Prize is that it's for, it's for a leader, it's for a person. And I think that's really valuable. And it's the only one I know that does that. It gives a resource to the person who is leading this innovation. And that's very valuable because it allows them to, to think, what do I need to be a more effective innovator or to build this business or this social enterprise more effectively? And it's the only prize I've come across that does that. And I commend the uh, people who founded it and their uh, continued support for it, because I think it really is, it's a very valuable prize. So applications will soon be opening for the Cambridge Social Innovation Prize, and you are going to be a judge again. Firstly, can you tell me why you think somebody should apply for it? I think people who are setting up social innovations should take advantage of the prize. And it's not just the money, of course, it's the advice. 
they will receive and support that they could receive in terms of scaling up and the growth stage of their innovation. So I think that's very important. You know, most of the people who set up social innovations and social businesses and, you know, look at look at a problem of say young people and and their mental health and think about how they can do something about that they're doing this often on their savings or as well as a full-time job and so you know these are special people that deserve our support as as you you move forward in your political career and as an advocate and allied for social innovators and social entrepreneurs. How do you see the future of this movement? I keep calling it a movement, but that's that's how I feel it is. Well, having been involved in the cooperative movement all my life, I think I, I'm not I'm quite familiar with the word of movement. And it is it is actually something which describes um how ideas move forward as well as things, as well as structures and businesses and so on so i think movement not is not a bad way of describing it i think this we're in a sort of slightly turbulent world at the moment i don't think there's any question about that at all both politically and environmentally and socially not the first time the world's been like that and my observation is that the presence of people who are prepared to put themselves out to set up innovations and to work with others to change their neighbourhood and support those who are most disadvantaged is even more important now. And that people who are prepared to find innovative solutions to environmental problems locally as well as nationally and, and so on, these are people who need our support and deserve our backing. I am a very optimistic person and I came out of the Thatcher years as a Labour politician, feeling that actually one of the things that had happened during those years, and those years of the undermining of civic structures, is that actually a lot of innovation took place. And that's when, of course, social enterprises really started to grow enormously during the uh, late 80s and the 90s. It's observable that that's what happened. And I mean, I'm sure there'll be sociologists and all sorts of people will be look, going, looking back at that and wondering why that happened. But it is the case because people had to look to themselves and their communities to support the things they needed to. It was very tough. And I'm not saying that I want those things to happen. I want those Thatcher years back again. And I think we've got some very, very even more serious social and societal problems now, huge poverty. And in a way, that underlies the point that we've got to support social innovation, social enterprise, because they are one of the ways that you can build civic cohesion and support people. And there's no question that's really important. You talk about being an optimistic individual. To my mind, often what drives somebody towards politics is, is something that has angered them. And what is it that has angered you? that you want to be able to affect change? Oh, goodness me. Well, I'm a member of the Labour Party. I have been coming up to uh, nearly 50 years membership. And I'm a member of the Labour Party and a politician because I really want to affect social change. I really, really do want to affect social change. But I also know that you do that in many, many different ways. 
And so, you know, I've been furiously angry at various times in the last, just let's look at the last 10 to 15 years at, you know, for example, the loss of Sure Start centres. In a community like where I live, the Sure Start centre was a place where young women like my daughter who were having problems breastfeeding went in groups with other young women from the estates around Camden and were supported. And it was provided by the state. It was provided by the council and the NHS in Camden. And that was replicated all over the country. And the idea that those centres were closed down because they were, they were not supported from the national government because, and they made cuts. That's, that's the kind of thing that makes me very angry. And you can't expect charities to fill that gap. And you can't expect necessarily social innovation to fill that. The social innovation of the, were the actually the Sure Start centres, they were the social innovation there to, to put in one place the kind of support that families and particularly mothers needed to recognise that actually the start that a baby gets in life can affect the whole of its life was an innovation and was really important. And it's always a balance between what can be done and what people should be doing to support themselves and their communities and what the state should be providing and there's always that kind of tension and you're quite right to point to whether or not social innovation charities social enterprises were substituting for the services that the state should be providing and i don't see it like that what i do see is that for example with the nhs you can have social enterprises providing services within the NHS, and that's a perfectly legitimate way of providing NHS services. And quite often, because they are innovative and because they're not bound by an enormous bureaucracy like the NHS, they can actually provide even better services. So, for example, Bevan Healthcare in Bradford, which is where I'm from, Bevan Healthcare was started by two doctors, one of whom actually was the doctor for my family in Bradford, going out onto the streets in a voluntary way, this was completely in their own time and at their own expense, to provide healthcare to people who were itinerant, living on the streets, were prostitutes, were having serious drug problems. And they started that, they started doing that because they could see that there was a real need for that. And also that the lack of health care for people who were itinerant and were struggling had a knock-on effect on the rest of the NHS. So over time, they, they set up a medical centre in the centre of Bradford, which was, which was actually usually opened at five o'clock in the evening and closed at midnight, and which had outreach workers. And their job was to provide health care and this was funded by the NHS in Bradford because they could see that this was a cost-effective way of providing some quite serious health care. For example, somebody who lived on the street and has TB, getting them to do a three-month course of treatment is very difficult indeed. And if they don't do that three-month course of treatment, there's a good chance they will then develop anti uh, a form of TB which is resistant to antibiotics which makes them actually a very serious public health danger. So you have an organisation there in the health service that makes it its business to make sure that that person who lives on the streets 
completes their three-month course of TB treatment. Very innovative. And it's now been replicated in all sorts of places, particularly up in Yorkshire, that you should be providing your healthcare. And they and they have commissioned that social enterprise to provide that healthcare. That seems to me like an extremely good use of public money, but it's not been provided by the traditional NHS. It's been provided through a social innovation and a social enterprise. My final question for you is how can governments policy and social innovators move forward in being able to provide healthcare in the manner in which you described it and being able to create housing estates that provide everything that the the residents need? Well, actually, right, literally right this minute, I am involved in um, a bill called the Procurement Bill. It's very large and very complex, you can just imagine. However, there's a team of us in the, across the House of Lords, across party, we are trying to insert into this bill the concept of social value and public value, that when you are procuring, because, you know, the, the biggest procurer of everything and anything in the country is, in fact, the government. Of course it is, and the NHS. So they are hugely important to how our economy runs and functions and we would like them to procure on the basis that they look at the social value of the procurement as well as its monetary value and we've made it you know we do actually have a a thing called the social value act on the statute book but it is voluntary at the moment so we're trying to make that statutory so that's just a practical example of one of the things and the thing is this is it would be easy for me to kind of say, well, we're going to try and make sure it's all in the manifestos of the political parties and all of that. And of course, that's exactly right. You want to be able to influence public policy and find um, a sympathetic place for innovations to grow, be funded when they need to be, be able to pr- procure contracts from the government to deliver services, whether it's in employment or health or whatever. Course, but actually to be able to do that, what you've got to do is make sure that the really, really, really anarchy, boring things like this large procurement bill allow you to do that. And that is what I'm doing at the moment <laughs> at the moment, along with other people in the House of Lords who understand this agenda. We're also trying to get written into that bill things about environmental, um, because that's also is kind of obvious that you shouldn't be buying products from organisations that do damage to the environment. You should be buying products from organisations that are um, have got a very strong environmental policy and a green agenda. So that those are the practical governmental things that you need to do to make these things possible. But you also do need political parties to kind of recognise in terms of the, their policies and their agendas what you know what the value is to the world of social enterprise social innovation and it's a never-ending process that's the other thing I've learned over the last 40 odd years is that you should never think the job is done because it isn't done apart from anything else you're talking about innovation so there are always new things to think about but also you should never assume that the next administration of any government or local government will actually know what the last lot did and and want to continue it or change it for that matter. So there's a continual process 
of education debate discussion that goes on. And that's why, in a way, from my point of view as a politician who's doing these things, being involved with the Centre for Social Innovation, and I am incredibly honoured. I am I can't tell you how honoured I am to be an honorary fellow of the uh, of the centre. Actually, makes me do my job better because I learn a lot about who is doing what, who's setting up what, what the approach is to children with mental health. I'm just looking at the people who've won the prizes in the last year or so, careers programs and the bookseller and so on. And these things are really valuable for me to know. So I am not only excited and hope I can support the centre and value to your work, but also I absolutely will gain such a lot from it myself. That was Baroness Glenys Thornton, a member of the House of Lords, a fellow for the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and a judge for this year's Cambridge Social Innovation Prize, which we're now taking applications for. If you're a UK-based social enterprise, you can find out more about the application process by following the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube.